Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing fantastic, Neil. How are you? Good, good. For your Boston fans, especially, you know, your business located in the Boston region, they got to be a huge fan of our guest today. So New England Patriots all-star legend Tony Collins. Tony, thanks for stopping by, man. And how about when you were part of... The 80 run, you never thought that there'd be this dynasty with the Patriots, right? Did you ever think that, you know, going through working the way you work to get to the certain point, which is the Super Bowl, and then later on see the dynasty, which the Patriots end up creating? I mean, it was it was a lot of fun watching it. I tell you, uh, watching Brady do his thing. Um, you know, it, it. I mean, it. you never know what, what's going to happen. And uh, the, the the years that I was there, uh, my my rookie season, we were two and fourteen. So, <laughs> so, and and then in you know my my third fourth year, we make it to the Super Bowl. So, um, a lot of people don't know that we were the first New England Patriot team to go to a Super Bowl. But uh, it, it's just incredible to see the dynasty that it is, and hopefully we can get it back running again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so well, that, that's amazing. Yeah, so so Greg, you will start out, Greg, with just finding out. Do you always want to be a football player, Tony? Is that something growing up you want to be a football player? Oh uh, man, so I'm from a big family. I don't know if you know how how many. I'm from a family of sixteen, and so oh, wow. I have nine nine brothers. There were nine boys and seven girls, and all the boys we all played sports. My father uh, actually uh, played in the Negro League, so we all played baseball. Uh, we all played football. We all played basketball, but our our main uh, sport was football. And so every everybody in the family played football. And, uh, grew up in a, a small town in upstate New York. <laughs> I'll tell you how I got there later. So what but, small uh, town in upstate New York? Because my dad grew up in Scroon Lake, uh, Pinyan, outside of Rochester. Okay, on Cuca <laughs> Lake. It's about it's about a, it's about an hour uh, hour south of Rochester, New York. Okay. Yeah, so that's where I grew up at, and uh, we just just created a kind of a, a little small, 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 small town. Uh, so we were number one uh, state champion, small school, uh, my senior year. But it, it was even before that, my brothers played there, and you know, they, it was like a dynasty for us. <laughs> so it, it, every, everybody knew Pinyan was a was a football town because of the Collins family, and so. Uh, uh, it, it was pretty cool growing up in, in that little small town. Well, that's great. What, when did you know that you were going to be in the NFL? When did you decide that was going to happen? <laughs> uh, okay, so I think I was like nine years old. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I uh, I go to my mom and I tell my mom, and I, I tell this to, uh, I, I used to tell to a lot of kids, I, I don't speak as much as I used to. Um, your words have power. And so I went to my mom and I told my mom, I said, I said, mom, I'm going to play in the NFL at nine years old. And, uh, and my mom said, son, you can do anything you want to do if you put your mind to it. And from that moment on, man, I, I, it's hard to, to explain how to make somebody believe it. I knew at nine years old that I was going to play in the NFL because my mom said I could do it. <laughs> See, Tony, that's sometimes the only thing we need is somebody to be behind us believing in us. 
Yes, that's, that's it. It's so if you don't have people believing in, in you, you kind of really, that's the big thing. It's so much mindset when you have talent. Because if people are telling you, yeah, you can't. I remember when I was a professional wrestler and because I was a big guy, I wasn't, you know, as well polished in the ring, but I had a good size and everything. The, the guys would just say, yeah, you're never going to go to the big time and all right, these different right, things. Right. And you listen to these naysayers. I came close to the WWE. I wrestled once in the WWE against Crush and Savia Vega, but I never, you know, reached the pinnacle, went overseas. But I allow people's at my young age mindset hearing this. How much are you, are you glad you had people around you that supported you? Because you see athletes today that if they didn't have that support, you wouldn't get to where you are. Uh, it was it was tremendous for me. And see, here here's the thing about me. I had, I had my older brothers. Uh, I was I was number seven out of the out of the nine boys, and so I had a lot of older brothers to look up to, and and they all play football. Actually, I wasn't the best football player out of that come out of that, out of them boys. <laughs> so uh, I had a brother who started freshman on varsity. No one ever starts freshman in Pinyan on varsity. So he did. And so and here's the here's the key to that to that thing for me. Uh so my my older brother started on varsity. His name was Morris, his freshman year in high school. And so that was my goal, man. You know, that was all I wanted to do is make sure I start on varsity my freshman year like my brother Morris. And uh, I didn't make the team. <laughs> I I didn't make varsity. And uh, I know you hear the Michael Jordan story, but it, it was just like that. I I worked my butt off, man. I was so disappointed, and I never want I never wanted to feel that way again. And so I I just I, I was I was really a fanatic. Um, I'm to be totally honest with you, I took it to another level. <laughs> I used to run hills. I used to run stadium steps. <laughs> I'm I'm in the ninth grade, man. Everybody think I'm crazy. <laughs> But uh, I just took it to a whole nother level. And uh, my, my sophomore year, I went out for the team. And, and of course, I made it. And uh, the rest is history. But yeah, you know. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, and what was the what was the next stop after high school? What what happened next? Actually, we went to uh, East Carolina University. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy how I got to East Carolina University. So my uh, senior year in high school, you, you get five official visits. And so... Um, uh, I had visited Syracuse, uh, schools close to cl close to the area where I can drive to, and I, and I got a visit to the University of Florida. So I'm I'm in upstate New York. So now I get a chance to go to University of Florida on a visit, and I'm really excited. Now you got to also understand, I've never been on an airplane before. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're from a family of sixteen, you don't travel on airplanes a lot. So. Uh, I've never been on an airplane before, and I was so excited about getting on this airplane and going and visit the University of Florida. Uh, got on the airplane, got down there, man, everything was just perfect. Um, Ping Yang Academy colors are orange and blue. Florida's orange and blue. Um, I mean, everything just went perfect. Um, uh, I signed a letter of intent. I'm going to University of Florida. That was my fourth visit. So everything is, is fine. I, I come back home. I get a call from Pat Dye. I don't know if you remember Pat Dye. He coached at Auburn. Okay, I remember. Mm -hmm. Coach Bo Jackson. He was at East Carolina. Oh, okay. So, so Pat Dye calls me up on the phone. He, he says, uh, we see you have one more visit to take. Would you like to come to East Carolina? I never heard of East Carolina before. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but my first question to him, I said, are you going to fly me now? And he says, yeah, we'll, we'll fly you now. So I get to get on the airplane, uh, the second trip on the airplane, uh, my second in two weeks. So I was excited about going on the airplane. And I had no intentions of going to East Carolina University. None. I didn't even, it wasn't even a question. I'm going to University of Florida. I'm just going for the visit to have, have a good time. And so uh, I get down there <clears throat> and Pat Dye says this to me. He says, son, if you come here, you'll get an opportunity to, to play. And you get an opportunity to play in the NFL. And he changed my mind. Um, the coach at Florida, I, I think it was Dickie. I'm not really sure what coach it was. But he said I might get redshirted my freshman year. And I didn't know too much about redshirting. But Pat Dye said, if I come there, 
I get an opportunity to play, and I get an opportunity to play in the NFL. And I remember to this day, my father said, I heard of, I heard of North Carolina and I heard of South Carolina, but where in the hell is East Carolina? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even on the map, man. And, and that was that was Pat. That was the reason I went to East Carolina, and you know the rest is history for that too. I'm I'm in, uh, had a, had a great career at ECU, and uh, and you know really making my dreams come true of being drafted by the New England Patriots in the second round. Phenomenal. So how did you get through the winters up here? You know, I've lived here my whole life. I've always been threatening to move to Florida, <laughs> to California, to North Carolina, but I'm still here. So See, how did you thing. get through it? I, I'm, 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 I grew up in the snow and I wanted to get away from the snow. That was one of the reasons I, I went, I was going to go to Florida. And so, uh, and, and then when I get drafted by New England, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to go back to the snow again. So uh, you, you kind of get used to it. You never get used to the snow, uh, snow in the driveway, plowing the driveway and all that. I don't know how you guys do it, man. Uh, you know, more power to you to stay up there. I, I'm still friends with Roland James and, and Ronnie LaFette. Those guys still live up there. Lip and, they're from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know why Lip stays up there, but he still stays up there, you know. So more power to him. I, I like the warm weather. Uh, feels feels good on my bones and my aching knees. <laughs> you know, and and that's the thing. And but playing in Foxborough, that's crazy, right? The home field advantage you had playing there. Oh uh, yeah. And, and see, yeah. And, and see, when we played, we our, our turf. I mean, the turf that they have now is like. You know, it's like a almost like a, a, a walking on a, a, a bed compared to what we had. I mean, we had that hard turf. I mean, it was it was cement underneath the turf. That, that's what we were. That's what we were running on. But the thing about it was that the, the home that 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 home field advantage, especially in the snow. Uh, we we like to play Miami in the snow and have teams come and 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 doing the doing the, the, those winter weathers. And it was an advantage for us. And, you know, being a running back, I, I really don't like running in the snow or running in the rain, but it was to our advantage to to have uh, that home field. Wow. So, you know, 1985, you're, you're playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> what, what were you thinking to yourself, you know, when, when you're going out on the field for the first time? On well, the game? You know, it, it's, it's like a dream come true. You, you dream about it for, uh, as, a, as a kid and, and now you got an opportunity to play in it. It, it was it was pretty special, um, you know. The, even the week before, with all the uh, attention from the media and different things like that, is it's just uh, incredible how it was. Everything that I thought it would be, uh, except the turnout. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it was. I think our thing in '85, our team we had a we had a fantastic team. Um, uh, we were on the road uh, to New York the first game. Uh, then we went out to L.A. to beat L.A. And no one thought we were going to um, beat Miami in Miami. I don't think we won a game down there in <clears throat> probably 20-something years. I can't remember. But it, it had been a long time since we won a game in Miami. And so, and everybody wanted Miami and, and the Chicago Bears to play because at, at that year Miami was the only team to beat Chicago in the regular season. So everybody thought that was going to be the matchup for the Super Bowl, except us. <laughs> and so uh, it, it was it was a it was a super ride getting there. Uh, but you know, you know, once we got there, it, it was great. But once the game was over, it wasn't so great because we didn't play to our capabilities. And uh, but it was fun getting there. <laughs> and did you think that year that you guys were going to get to the Super Bowl? You know, you. you like I said, my, my 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 rookie season, we we were two and fourteen, and uh, and Raymond Barry came in my my third year. I think he, Raymond came in in eighty four, uh, and 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 I I, I got to give it to Raymond Barry. He really turned that that that, that team around because uh, we he started making us believe that we could win. Because my rookie season, man, we were, I remember us playing games and and I mean we're we're actually winning a game and we're looking at each other because we've lost so many games. We're wondering how we're going to lose this game. And, and you know, we, we went two and 14 that year, but uh, Ron Myers came in, he did, he did a great job. But when Raymond came in, he just took us to a whole nother level uh, because he made us 
believed that we could win. And, and, and that was the whole key to that. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, 84, he came in, he came in uh, half of the season. And so the 85 season, the beginning of 85, go all the way through training camp, man, we, we had, we had a, a, a unbelievable uh, team. Uh, we had some great players. We had great defense. Uh, I don't know how many turnovers we, we created that year, but we created a whole lot. And it was all because of Raymond Berry and having us believing that, that we can win. We had no doubt. Uh, we, you know, going into the Super Bowl, I thought we were going to win the Super Bowl because no one believed we were going to do it. But uh, Chicago had one of the best defense that, that year and uh, put put us uh, <laughs> put us in our place that uh, when we get, got down <laughs> So Tony, do, does the Patriots have like reunions, like old teams? Can they, oh yeah, teams I mean, together they, and... we, we we've had a reunion, the the Super eighty five reunion, and the, 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 I think the biggest thing now for me with with the Patriots and what they do is with the uh, with the alumni, uh, they have us come back up and uh, we sign autographs at uh, beginning beginning of the game and then at halftime. And the the thing, <clears throat> the thing about the NFL, I tell I tell my sons. That one of the things that I miss the most is the camaraderie with the fellas, you know. And so, you know, you get a chance to see some of the guys that you played with and uh, you went to battle with. And, and that that's what's, that what makes it really cool to, to do that. So I got to give New England their props. They, they have us come back and uh, get, get a chance to see the other guys because, you know, I know the guys that live up there, <laughs> they, they, they're up there. But it's, it's not a whole lot of guys. A lot, a lot of guys don't stay up there because of the weather. But, uh uh, it's good to see Lip and, and Roland James and uh, Steve Grogan. I used to have a golf tournament, and all those guys used to come to my golf tournament. And so we're, we're still we're still we're still friends today. I interviewed Steve Grogan probably eight or nine years ago. I got to go find that link to that interview. And oh man, he's a humble guy, isn't he? And just, yes, he is. He, he he's very humble. I, I, I remember I, I was telling uh, I had a golf tournament in my hometown in Pingyang, which is like a it's like a six hour drive. Uh, uh, from from New England, from from Boston, and uh, and and I, I, I usually fly a man for for some reason. Uh, Steve couldn't get on the plane, but for uh, yeah, for some reason on the flight that I, I need him get on, and he drove for six hours <laughs> to to come to come, just to come play in my tournament. And so you know, just that's the type of guy he is. Um, just a good friend and a great player, a great uh, uh, man. He was he was a. He was he was a baller, man. He 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 he. I, I'm gonna tell you, he was the reason, another reason why we went to Super Bowl that year because of what he did uh, coming in replacing uh, Eason uh, when Eason got hurt. And that's the big thing that Grogan did was again the whole uh, Doctor Heckle Jekyll and Mister Hyde type thing that you're doing <laughs> with the NFL today. I remember that completely. You know, I'm a Pittsburgh guy, Pittsburgh Steeler fan through and through. Remember that Patriots year. Remember the Bears year. Wow, that that was that was pretty amazing to be. Now, Greg, you you told me you stopped watching sports as I have. I just at least keep track of what's happening in sports. <laughs> but you, because he's such a busy entrepreneur, uh, you know, when you a big company. Now, Greg, tell me flat out, you know, were you a Patriots fan at that time? Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I was a Patriots time, fan back then for sure. I was I was just out of out of college, you know, 84, 85. and I remember. I remember when you guys played that game against Miami Dolphins and I had this basketball goal outside the backyard attached to the garage. And I'm like, all right, if I get 10 in a row, that means the Patriots are going to win. You know? <laughs> and, and I got the 10 and then you Did won, you? but it wasn't me, but it was you. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, go figure. What happens? It's amazing. So that was the year. Was was that eighty five Marino? You guys beat him, or was that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah wow. it was Marino. Marino was there then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh man, yep. that's yep. that's gotta be for sure. So life after football. That's a challenge. Life, life after football. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm I'm pretty sure you guys know my story. I I got a I, I got when I was playing in the league. I got addicted to painkillers, and I and I, I see. I don't know the whole story, Tony. So God, yeah. I got addicted to the painkillers, and I got the opportunity to uh, write a book. It's called "Broken Road: Turning nice. My Mess, Turning My Mess into a Message." And I, I made a mess, man. I, um, uh, just to tell you the little story on it, and um, my I tell kids all the time: you're, you're, uh, one of the keys of your success is the choices that you make. And so, um, 
my third year, I think, was in the league. I had a great year. Um, but at the beginning of the season, I got, I got cracked ribs. And uh, and so I, I have an opportunity to to sit down and rest my ribs and maybe give somebody else an opportunity to take my job. Or I can start taking these painkillers and stay on the field. And uh, I made the choice to taking the painkillers, and I stayed on the field. And I played that year with, with uh, well, not the whole year, but half the year with cracked ribs. But uh, I got addicted to painkillers, mm. and and so uh, and, it, and it was easy to get. You know, the trainers were giving us. You know, that's that was one of the things that you know how it was back then. Trainers give you the painkillers and you take the painkillers and everything's fine. And you get the shot before the game and you get the shot at halftime. And, uh, you know, after the, after the all the stuff wears off and now you got to take all these painkillers <clears throat> to go to sleep. And I got hooked. I got hooked on them and I was taking painkillers to go to sleep and I was taking painkillers to wake up. Uh, and to start my day and keep going. And I got addicted to painkillers. And, and then I started uh, uh, well, well, tell you this. I, one of the guys on the team, because here, here's my story. I grew up in the church. <laughs> we went to church every Sunday. And so I knew about God. And my father was a deacon of the church. My mom sang in, sang in the choir. And so uh, all those years, I never drank. I never I never did anything. And I was that I was that kid that, that never experienced anything, anything like that uh, until I, I got to the league. And once that happened, um, I, you know, I started using marijuana because the marijuana it would it would calm my nerves down a little bit and it would it would not make me throw up because the painkillers were I was taking so many painkillers it was making me nauseated and so uh, the marijuana I started smoking marijuana then it led to cocaine and 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 I started and one of the things that I tell kids all the time uh, who you surround yourself with who you who you surround yourself with tells a lot about what you're doing and so I started to surround myself with you know guys that I can get. Uh, painkillers from and drugs from and uh it, it got to a bad scene and uh you know I, I i heard a lot of people i messed up a lot of things i could have played a lot longer um could have done a lot better on the field uh but uh it was it was that choice that i made of just that choice that i didn't think it was a bad choice i thought it was a good choice to stay on the field but it actually turned out to a to be a bad choice for me and i'm not blaming it on anybody i made the choice to do that but here's the key to it all. Uh, I, I got the opportunity to write a book and uh, started a foundation and uh, started helping a lot of kids. And the crazy thing about all this is my little town that I that I grew up in. It had a a, a heroin. I, I didn't. I never used heroin before. But you know, opioids addiction in that town was just crazy, man. And so I went back to went back home and started the foundation there and, and you know tried to. Help help people as much as I can in my little small town that you never thought would be. Uh, uh, kids were dying; they were actually dying in that little small oh, town. Yeah. And so it it was crazy how God uh, let me go back to my own town and, and maybe save some lives and uh, help a lot of kids. And uh, we the golf we used to do golf tournaments once once the pandemic hit, the golf tournament kind of faded away and. I'm kind of getting old now and I'm retiring. <laughs> Can't travel as much as I want. <laughs> but uh but but the book is doing great. Uh got an opportunity to go on Steve Harvey's show and uh you know just just you know I just want to help as many people as I can uh because you know I I got an opportunity to play a sport that man that I I just love doing and 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 I made some mistakes and but I, I just want the kids to know that even even when you make mistakes, you still can help people. And, and, and that's what I want to do. I want to help as many people as I can. All right. Greg has this, uh, you have two questions, I'm sure. One to follow up with them and then your final question. Yeah. Well, so quick follow up. So so like me and others, you know, you're probably a little bit upset about how the country is allowing marijuana to be. <laughs> sold basically at the grocery store, right? You know, and, and these gummies and all this stuff. And you you said it pretty pretty plainly that the marijuana lets other stuff. And I've always believed that. So yeah. it, it's a little heartbreaking to know that that's happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's where that's where we're at now, though, man. It's just it's and it's I, I, and it's going to get worse. I I I don't see it getting any better. So 
But again, and that's what you, I talk about in the book. It's all about the choices that you make. You got to just got to got to make good choices and and just try to to, to surround yourself with good people. Um, the, the the more successful people you surround yourself with, the more successful you can become. Yeah, perfect. Well, Tony, I have I have a question that I love to ask all my guests. Um, what's the most important thing in life you've ever learned? Wow. <laughs> It's it's a that's a good question. What the most the most important? There's so many of them. I know. <clears throat> there's so many of them. I, I think one of the things that 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 stick with me is is uh is making sure that 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 you tell your family and you let your family know and you let people that you know even even if you're if they're your friends to let them know that you know you care let them know that you know you you sometimes you think about them and I, I think that's that's the thing about you know you know give me give me give me my roses now and I'll give them to me when I'm dead and, and you know I, I, I'm a big family guy I'm I, 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 I got a big family right now uh, I got I've, I got 14 grandkids and wow. I got another I got another one on the way <laughs> so I, I I love family, and I and my biggest thing for me is is is, is family, and I, and I think one of the things that you want to make sure is is that make sure you you know your family knows that you love them and you care about them, and and not just them. I think you know this, this crazy time uh, time that we live in, and you know we got black against whites, Democrats against Republicans. There's so so much. Hate, I, I, and that, I know that's a strong word, but it's it's so much division. Yeah. And we, if we could all start, you know, just just, just caring about people. I don't care what color you are; you're a human being, man. I, and I and I care about you. And so uh, that's the thing, man. We we just got we got to love more in this in, in this time that we're in, and and, that, and that's what I do now. I'm I, I'm I'm living my best life right now, man. Um, I, I got a great wife, and great family. And, uh, it couldn't be better. <laughs> so it's a great journey for sure. Best place people can find the information on you, Tony. Where can they go? You can go to uh, you can go to Facebook and hit me up if you want to get if you want to get the book. You, you can go to Amazon. They have the book on Amazon. You won't get it signed, uh, but if you uh, hit me up, just like you hit me up on Facebook, if you hit me up on Facebook and and, and just. Uh, uh, or 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 Instagram, uh, I'm on there uh, not a lot, but I'm on there some. And just uh, message me, and I can get the book to you. I get, even get it signed and everything for you. And and um, uh, it's it's even cheaper when you, if you get it from me than you get it from Amazon. <laughs> ah, see, there you go, Tony, for sure, for sure. Appreciate you coming by. It was such a great uh, honor to have you on the show. And and you hear about the Patriots and really talk about specifically going through those struggles to overcome and find your life because all of us make mistakes and yeah. through those mistakes, that's the only way we grow as human beings is, is going, going through those trials and tribulations to become the person that we are today. So thanks again. And, 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 and I think the key to that, once you go through those different trials and tribulations and things that you go through, make sure you go and help somebody else with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I think it's all about. You go through something, now you can help somebody else go through that same thing. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. it. Thanks, Tony. All right, guys. All right, take guys. Care. That was Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Guys, take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, man, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Had an awesome week. Couldn't wait till today. And I want to know what a Meganet is, and we're going to find out. Exactly. And our author today is very interesting, David Arabach. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you, David, because ultimately this technology thing is becoming such a popular thing, especially now with AI. The conversations, it's perfect timing for your book to come out, right? Especially with ChatGPT and all the things they're talking about, AI controlling society, if you watch uh, like the uh, social media, you know, David? Yeah, well, indeed. Um uh, I was pretty sure that something would happen, uh, and I think part of the uh, part of the impetus for me writing this book was because I saw common threads to these technological 
crises and chaos that keep happening. And I, and by treating them in isolation, I think we feel helpless and we don't quite understand what's actually going on. Oh, no doubt. It's like something where you're, you're, you're saying to yourself, this all happened so fast. Right. And it really didn't. Yeah. You, you predicted this, right. You, I'm sure you were, especially when you're knowing what AI is going to be able to create for itself. Well, yeah. So, you know, I worked at Microsoft and I worked at Google for a long time. And I'll say that I didn't quite see the extent of it either. And it wasn't even the technology. It's the interaction of the technology and hundreds of millions of people. That's the unexpected part. The technology couldn't do what it does today unless the collective mass of humanity was interacting with it constantly. And that's, I think the piece that everybody is missing, that it's not just the computers and it's not just humans, it's actually both of them working together. And how they're working together is a question that I think hasn't been answered well enough. Wow, that's very interesting. Now, David, I noticed that uh, you did a bunch of research at Microsoft. Is that one of the focuses? That uh, I, work, I was a software engineer at both okay. Microsoft and at Google, yeah. Yeah, I worked on internet uh, properties and search and all that. And search, yeah. So you've been in, in this area of you know, collecting information and seeing what people are interested in and, and so on. Are you surprised? I mean, it, it surprises people today. I mean, even my wife the other day, she's like, we were just looking at that. And all of a sudden I'm getting a phone call about the thing that we were just talking about like a couple of days ago, or, you know, it's, it's really amazing how all these little data points are being used, you know, to, to deliver the content, to put the right merchant yeah. in front of you, et cetera. And it goes well beyond that because all of this data that's collected in a massiveness and fed into all sorts of other things like these AIs. It's not as though these AIs are just taking individual data points. They're taking the collective mass of all the content human produces, human entity produces, and it spits it back out in this very uncanny way that seems almost human. But it couldn't do that if humans hadn't provided it with that much content to base itself off of that's why ai reflects our nightmares back to us so well because our nightmares are fed into it and when we ask it to tell it to give us <laughs> well what's your shadow self like what's the scariest thing you think of it'll tell you exactly what we're most scared of because that's what we fed it with wow Wow, that's that's scary, isn't it? Well, the good news is it doesn't know what it it doesn't understand what it's saying. It's just being prompted. But it does a very good job of convincing humans that it does know what it's saying. And that's going to be a problem. That's the scary part. But it doesn't actually understand or mean any of the things that it says. Wow. Huh. So so back in the late 90s and early 2000s when, you know, data warehousing was you know becoming a a thing, you know, and using all these data points and companies to to get better customers and all these things. So where it is today, I mean, back then you guys were probably talking about that. Do you ever imagine that it was going to get to the amount of data and storage required? You know, worldwide, what's being being stored these we days. We knew, we certainly knew that there would be an ungodly amount of data. That wasn't surprising. I think what's surprising is that the data then took on a life of its own, that even within these large companies, you're chasing the data rather than vice versa, sort of you're struggling to keep up with the data. Because, you know, if, if computers misbehave, and the reason they're misbehaving is more data that can be humanly processed, what are you going to do? Well, you can get an AI to sort it out. Now the AI is the problem when the AI misbehaves. That's the part that I think people didn't understand. It's not the part, it's certainly the part I didn't understand, because uh, I don't think most of us anticipated that the data would become so powerful and so unintentionally powerful that mm -hmm. any one person makes a tiny amount of data, but all of those people's data fed in collectively to an AI or just to a network has unpredictable effects that even Facebook and Microsoft and Google can't control. Do you think people rely too much on control. AI? Do you think people... Sorry? Relax, react, I mean, uh, rely too much on AI, in your opinion? Well, I think it's early days. I don't think we've seen that much in AI so far. Right now, uh, you know, what we see is actually comparatively simple algorithms and their unpredictability, I think, augurs, you know, just 
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, man, what's going on? How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic, Neil. How are you? It's been a great week. Good. Exciting I, guests. Absolutely. I'm to talk to our next guest. Our next guest. Here's the thing I, I look at is everyone wants to be in Steve Barry's shoes. New York Times bestselling author, authored multiple bestselling books, really has made it a career when ultimately, at the end of the day, there are so many authors trying to get to where Steve is. So I'm excited to welcome New York Times bestselling author, Steve Barry, author of The Last Kingdom, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Plus your career, Steve, thanks for stopping by. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So do you agree with me? It, 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 everybody wants this when they start to say they want to become a writer to attain what you've attained as a writer and to create this into something pretty special. Well, I mean, if you if your goal is to be a commercial fiction writer, then I'm, I would agree with that. You know, the vast majority of writers, though, just write to write. They don't really write to sell. Uh, I wanted to be a commercial fiction writer. So I wanted to write stories that would be bought by a publisher and sold by a publisher. So, yeah, if, you're, if your goal starts out to that, you, you'd like to try to end up where I was. I mean, where I am, it's, uh, you know, I have to pinch myself all the time because, you know, it took me 12 years to get published. It was not a, it was a very long process. And that's the thing. And I'm going to go back to Greg and then I and then Greg will have a question. This is the kind of stories I like to paint in this is everyone thinks it's an overnight, everyone's an overnight success that, oh my gosh, I'd be, I made it to this point right now. And it only, and it only took me a year or only took me six months. And it's not true. And Greg, to think about Steve went through 13 years to be published. Are you kidding me? And how well known he is now, Greg? Can you believe that? No, I do believe it. You know, being an entrepreneur, everybody says, well, overnight success. Yeah, 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, you know how it goes. It's a, it's just the way it is. But uh, it's pretty amazing. At New York Times, now everybody says, oh, I'm a best-selling author. I'm on the Amazon. I'm on this and that. Tell, tell us the difference between a New York Times bestseller and, and what we're seeing today by the self-published community? Well, it's just a matter of, of, of how it's gauged. I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, the, the New York Times list, as you well know, I don't know if you know this, not, it's not actually a bestseller list. It's actually the bestsellers that the New York Times wants to recognize as bestsellers. So it's not, it was created as a marketing tool for them to sell the Sunday paper. And they, and they, by their own admission, say that, you know, sales are but one factor they consider to put a book on the list. So, uh, yes, it's become the gold standard, but it's not actually a, uh, a true bestseller list. The best one was USA Today, but it's gone now. So, you know, USA Today counted all books regardless and counted them, you know, evenly and, and, and across all genres, but it's gone now, too. So we really don't have any measure of what is a bestseller, actually. We have what people's opinion is is a bestseller, but not really a bestseller. So that is a little bit frustrating that those things are all gone now. And, and your job is you want to keep the publisher happy so they hire you for another book, to write another book, right? Uh, that's, my, that's, yes, uh, my job is to keep doing it. Yeah, that's the job of a commercial fiction writer is to keep doing it. And those are measured, though, by sales. And sales, uh, you know, the score in this game is kept in dollar bills. That's how they keep the score. So it's all about how much money you make the publisher and how much, you know, you can generate for them to let you keep doing it. Okay. Wow. So let's talk about specifically your career before writing. Tell us your background. I was a lawyer. I, I practiced law for 30 years. I was a, a small town. I had a, um, my own firm. Uh, it was my own, I was me. And I had three ladies who worked for me. And uh, I was a street lawyer. I took whatever came in off the street and I did all kinds of things. I did, you know, everything you can think of, but I mainly did uh, criminal defense and divorces and things of all of that. You know, I was in court three, four days every week. I was basically a trial lawyer, but, you know, I did adoptions and corporations and wills and uh, loan closings when you buy a house. You know, I did an awful, I sell time, I did a lot of a little. I had little fees, but I had a lot of them. Where if you're in a big firm, you do a little of a lot. You get bigger fees, but you know you have less clients to deal with. Right. No, that's that's very interesting. I do a lot of law firms in my cybersecurity business, so I, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, so, so tell me, how do you do the research for the books that you write, or is it all just you know fiction that you come up with, or you know, tell me about that a little bit. 
No, my niche is that I keep my books as close to reality as possible. That's the niche I've forged for myself. So my books stay about 90% to reality. That 10%, I have to trip it up because I'm writing a novel and I'm there to entertain you. So I do have to do some tripping up. I always put a writer's note in the back of my novels, though, that tells you where I tripped up, though, and where where I where I made those adjustments. I use three to four hundred sources a novel. I do a lot of uh, research. I use mainly books. I need indexes. I need good indexes in books, and unfortunately, ebook indexes are useless, mm-hmm. so uh, I can't really use those. So I, I use a lot of books that when I go through, and I read a lot of books on uh, a single subject. And then I incorporate maybe 20% of what I read, maybe 10, 15, 20%, not much. Most of it's discarded, but I have to decide what to put in the novel and what not to put in the novel, trying to keep it as close to reality as possible. So that's wild because it's the the process. And you say you niche down. Did you do a lot of research in that when you said, this is what I want to be? I want to be... Uh, this and then I'm going to come up with this niche or was there a lot of process or just went for it? It's very simple. Uh, I think the advice you get, you hear this all the time, write what you know, write what you know. That's to me, that's terrible advice. Do not write what you know. That's insane. Instead, write what you love. Now, if what you know and what you love are the same thing, great. That's wonderful. But for me, I knew the law. So, but I didn't love it. I didn't want to write about it. So you pick what you love, not what you know. I loved action, history, secrets, conspiracies. That's what I liked in a book. And you would get those in the, in the 25, well, say 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you would get those in a Custler novel. You'd get those in a Ludlum novel. Uh, these kinds of folks would write this, was writing this. And then along came Dan Brown in 2003 and created, you know, a little different take on that genre. Luckily, that's what I was writing, Action, History, Secrets, Conspiracies. That's what Dan was writing. So thankfully, when Da Vinci came along, it opened up doors and allowed me to get published. It allowed me and a lot of other writers I know to get published as well. So I basically followed what I loved and just stuck to it. And 12 years after I started, I got, I caught a break one day. <laughs> that's amazing. So what, what style do you write in? I hear I hear some people say they like to they like to write it out longhand. Some sit at the computer and type. Some record it and then transcribe it into digital and then edit the digits. You know, what's your technique? I just type it on the computer. You know, I use you know word word program and just type it out. I make too many changes and too many editing for do it any other way. I've got to be able to change that thing constantly because I'm constantly changing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine dictating a novel. I know folks who do it too, but I just, it just, I couldn't dictate letters when I was a lawyer. So much less could I do a novel. I have to, I have to have a little more connection to it, a little more touchy feely, see it, that type of thing. So um, I stick with the technology, just simple typing out at the computer. Wow. Okay. And how, how many books have you written again? There's a bit I've, of- I've written about 26 but 22 have been published. Oh my goodness. Wow. And how long does it take you to write each book? It takes me about 18 months from start to finish. Now there's some overlap there, but with uh, about halfway through this novel, I start researching this novel so that when I'm done with this novel, I can start this one the next day and I'm ready to go. So there's a little overlap in there, but the whole process from start to finish is about 18 months, 12 months of solid writing though, and writing and researching. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Do you uh, do you ever mentor anyone? You know, either high school kids or college kids or anybody who's into being an author. Or? I've taught a lot. Uh, we taught as part of our History Matters Foundation. My my wife and I have taught about three thousand students across the country, and I used to teach at Thriller Fest every year as well. I would teach there, so I have done a lot of teaching, and I enjoy teaching. It's fun. Um, haven't had it, in, you know, done it in any type of. Uh, formal setting. It's more like, you know, in workshops and, and critique groups and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So is it cool every year time your book comes out and you do book signings to be with your fans? Cause I remember again, I've covered the mommy book fair. This is the first year I did not for 13 years online where basically they would connect us to it. 
to be at those big book festivals and see the fans of writers. It's got to be great to have fans, right? And you get to talk to them. They can't wait till your next book comes out. It, that's probably one of the best feelings a writer has because you can't hear it like if you were on stage with an audience. Your audience comes back and gives you feedback through email, through text, I mean, through you know social media, through reviews, but you really don't get to have that dialogue. So you got to love those events where you get to go meet them. I do. I do enjoy doing it. I just came back from tour. I did six cities around the country. So I just did that. And I've done 21 tours uh, over the last 22 years. So I've uh, I've done quite a few and I've enjoyed them. And uh, I like doing them. I like connecting. Uh, one of the greatest compliments a writer can get is someone says they liked your story. That is, that's, it never, that never gets old, to be honest with you. So, so tell me, uh, Cotton Malone, how did you come up with that character and how has he developed, you know, from, let's say, book one, when you first introduced up to, you know, book 22 or 26 now? Well, he was born in Copenhagen. I was there one evening uh, having dinner in Cafe Nordon, which is there in Highbroad Plods, which is a square there, sitting up there on the second floor, lovely night, and he just popped in my head and said, uh, he's going to live here. He's going to be retired from the Justice Department. He's going to own an old bookshop and he's going to get himself back into trouble occasionally. At that point in time, and I still think to this day, there was no real bookseller who was a thriller protagonist. So he was a little different. He was a little fresh. He came along in the Templar legacy and that book did really, really well. And I was not arrogant enough when I wrote that to think, well, I was just going to keep doing this forever. It'd be great. I was just hoping to do it once, maybe twice if we're lucky. Uh, but he, he caught on and he did very well. And he's caught on now 17 adventures. He's changed over the years. He's a little different. The Cop Malone of the Templar Legacy and the Cop Malone of the Last Kingdom is a little bit different. Uh, a little bit, you know, you know, you want your character to develop and change. Every book, I explore a new aspect of his personality that I've never explored before. I do that on purpose so that we can get more character development out of him. People should not be put off, though, because there's 17 books in the series. I write these books episodic so that you can pick them up anywhere you want to. You can pick up anywhere in the series. There's no requirement you had to read the book before in order to understand what this one is. So you can you can go in. It's just like watching the you know reruns of a, a syndicated show. You don't have to pick it up from the very first show. They're episodic and you can keep on and, can, and stay with it. So, you know, it's been very fortunate Cotton has caught on. He's done great. And uh, hopefully he'll get to stay around for many more years to come. Do you hope he'll ever be on it as a movie or a series ever? Sure, that'd be great. It'd be wonderful. And he's been optioned a lot, but uh, all just talk. No one's ever done anything. Just talk, 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 but nothing's ever happened. Why is that? Is it numbers or what's the reason? He's been, uh, I don't know. It's explain the question. option thing. Because a lot of my audience and Greg's audience are authors. They have dreams of being you. As I've said that before, I don't know if you knew millions and millions of people are writing books every day and they're, and they're self-published people that have a dream to be like you. And so what, is, what does option mean? Explain that to our audience. You know, uh a producer will come in and say, I'd like to, it, it, I mean, it'd be great if a producer came in and said, I want to buy your book. I want to buy your story. I want to buy your character. Here's a whole bunch of money and I'll buy it. And now I can do whatever I want to with it. It doesn't work like that. They don't want it. They don't do that. Unless you're uh, maybe where the, you know, the crawdads saying, you know, you're a huge book like that. They do come in and buy the book. Yes, they will. Uh, after many millions of copies or so. But in my case, they come in and say, We'd like to option your book. In other words, we're going to pay you a small amount of money. It's not, it's not, you know, horrible money, but it's not, you're not getting rich off of it either. It's maybe $10,000, dollars $20,000. And we will option your book for 18 months, which means I have the I have the exclusive control of your stuff for 18 months. And that gives them time to go out and see if they can sell it to a studio. Can they get a showrunner? Can they get a writer? Or, you know, all kinds of things and put together a deal. All the options contain a provision to renew the option. And this last guy renewed it like three times. So he came back and said, no, I'm still working on it. I'm, I still think I can do something. I want to renew it again. And then renew it again. But eventually that ran out and it didn't happen. For me, what I think hurts me a little bit is in my novels, the 
locations are critical. They are part of the story. And my locations are generally overseas. So you can't fake that. You got to go there and you got mm -hmm. to film there. And that drives up production cost. Uh, it certainly probably has some aspect to it. Like the Romanov prophecy, terrific story, but you got to go to Russia. You can't go to Russia right now. So, you know, it's not possible to film there. Um, I do have five American novels, and those are the ones they usually gravitate to first because they can film those here, but they still got to go to locations where those are filmed as well. So I think production costs have something to do with it as well. But, you know, across all the streaming services, all of them, there's nothing like my stuff. There's nothing like it anywhere. You would think we could have one, just one somewhere, but it hasn't happened yet. Why wouldn't the History Channel pick it up? That would be, think that'd be great, wouldn't it? I, I think the History Channel, I, I've suggested that several times that why doesn't the History Channel get into some fiction? Because my stuff is really close to that. You know, it's, it's historical. It has a lot of historical connection and it would be kind of fun and entertaining, you know, to have uh, uh, something like mine on the, I think mine on the History Channel would be ideal, but mm, nobody's interested so Vikings was that that was completely historical when completely, it was completely it very similar to mine that that bore little resemblance to real history they merged a lot of stuff together so mine would be very similar to Vikings yes it would except mine's even closer to reality than Vikings was uh, wow. you know Vikings was fascinating I loved the show mm -hmm. but they took a lot of liberties with the characters okay go ahead, Greg well so so Steve what what authors do you read, you know, when you're relaxing or, you know, just trying to take a break? What do you read? I'm a thriller junkie. I mean, I read Jim Rollins and Kussler and Baldacci and, you know, these folks. I mean, I don't get to read very often, though. I do maybe three, four books a year. Uh, I used to read four, five, six books a month, but there's just no time anymore. But when I do, I'm a little bit of a thriller junkie. Most of my reading is confined to nonfiction where I'm doing the research for the novels. Right. Well, I'm just right now saying that, yeah, the History Channel, find the upper executive in the History Channel, and I'm going to call them out right now. You need to option this, and you need this story, because it's fantastic. So tell us, without giving it away, what should we expect from the, the character this year for this book? Well, Cotton Malone's going to do, deal with two things that are one of my favorites. One is Bavaria. I love that part of the world, and he's going there. And he's going to be involved with three fantastic castles that are located there. And they were built by a man named King Ludwig II, who's another one of my favorites. Some people call him Mad King Ludwig. I don't really like that term. I don't think he was mad. I think he was deeply troubled. And he's probably, we would say today, chronically depressed or bipolar. We could treat him today. And, uh, but in the mid-19th century, that wasn't possible. So he fell into this great delusional state. And he... In this state, though, he created these three magnificent castles that are amazing. Heron Kimsey, uh, Linderhof, and New Schweinstein. New Schweinstein is recognizable to everyone. It's the one Walt Disney visited in the 1930s, and it became Sleeping Beauty's castle. So Ludwig created these castles. He was so delusional that he wanted a new kingdom. He wanted to leave Bavaria and have a new kingdom where he could rule like some mythical king from uh, a Wagner opera. And he sent a man around the world to find him a new kingdom. And this is actually true. He actually did this. And the guy went all over the world. And in real life, they never found it. But in the novel, they did. And now China, the United States, and Germany are now after this last kingdom. And they're all after it for a different reason. And Cotton Malone gets caught up in this adventure. And it's a lot of fun. I wish I could tell you more specifics about the novel because there's some really, really interesting history in this novel that's real, but it will give away a surprise in the novel. I don't want to do that. But there's some really fascinating stuff in here that when you get done, you're going to go, there's no way that can be true, but it is. Impressive stuff. Uh, Greg, I know you have your, that you might have one more question before your final question. Well, I actually, I, I've learned so much. I'm going to go for the final question right off and I'm going to pick up the book because it sounds amazing. Um, so uh, Steve, what's the most important thing in life you feel you've ever learned? Wow. That's a question to pop on somebody out of the clear blue sky. But uh, I think it would go to what, how I got published and that is never, ever, ever give up. Yeah. 
never, ever, ever give up. In my case, from the day I wrote my first word, the day I sold my first word was 12 years. I wrote eight manuscripts during that time. Five went to New York houses. They were rejected 85 times. I made it the 86th time, 12 years after I started. There's nothing special about me. There's no magic about me. The only thing I can say about me is, is I didn't quit. And I hung around long enough until one day Lady Luck said, okay, it's your day. Today's your day. I've been giving you a hard time for 12 years. Today is your day. So I would say to writers out there, you cannot give up. You must stay with it. You have to work on it. You have to learn your craft. You have to work at your craft and you have to keep writing every day and hang with it. So that's the, that's the most exciting advice for sure. And you went through all the different things. Once your book first came out, your first one that you got published, did you do anything special? To, they did all the marketing or did you do certain things on your own as well to make sure the book was a success? I did very little marketing because for a new writer you know, in those days and even still today, they did very little, did a little bit. I did most of it myself. What I did myself was, as I back in those days in 2003, there were a lot of regional book fairs. They were all over the Southeast. They have, I mean, there'd be 15 or 20 of them every year. I got myself into every one of them and I drove all over the Southeast hawking that book. And it worked, it, it caught on. Booksellers got to know me. Booksellers began to, to pick it up and sell it. The book did very well. They, uh, they printed 44,000 copies of The Amber Room, and that was a lot of books in those days. Today, that would be the equivalent of publishing maybe 100,000 books for a writer, which is unheard of today. So I was very fortunate, but I, I worked it myself. I got out there and worked it. The Random House did a little, I did more. And then the next book, they did a little more, and I did more. And you know, eventually they began to do more and more as you got more. Then Templar Legacy came along, my fourth book, and that's the one that changed everything. That's when Cotton Malone was reintroduced, and that was my breakout book. That's so fantastic to hear the story. I don't know if you get these questions to ask, but this is what really people tune into. They want to hear stories like this, and then they like they root for you and say, "Wow!" And now, Steve, you are inspiring somebody else not to give up on their books. Because so. that's, so. that's, that's truly the truth or give up in their dream and whatever their dream is. Correct. Is there a website we can check out too? You know, it's available on Amazon and all finer bookstores right now, your book, but anywhere else? No, you go to my website, steveberry.org. All the books are there. My History Matters Foundation's there. Everything's there. You can learn all about me and the books. We appreciate it, Steve. It was such a great time to learn Thank from you. you and an inspiring story to say the least, for sure. Thank Take you care. for having me. No, I appreciate it. Thank All you, right, Steve. that was Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing fantastic, Neil. And I really, I just can't wait to talk to this next guest. And when you look at his initials, you'll realize that he's the original AAA. <laughs> uh, so our guest today is Art Aris. He's a director. And we had such a amazing conversation last time and congrats on your success art you got to feel great about how the movie has done and everything it's got to feel great right you know it, you it decided decided to do it based on your church you decide i want to bring this story because of what you do and and congrats bringing that great cast together and the success in fathom so tell us the success first of all fathom how you did it you have top 10 that's got to feel great Sure. Well, Neil, let me say, first of all, we would not have gotten there without people like you guys. I mean, we just were really so blessed by the incredible PR that we had. But yeah, it did well in theaters. Uh, it was to be a one night, but in some places it went like two, three, four weeks. We just had some really good response. Of course, locally here in Florida, it did well. But anyway, yeah, we did. Actually, we had the third highest per screen average and uh, number 10 overall box office. That was 608 uh, screens. If they had given us a full regular movie release we would we would have rocked it we had the third highest per screen average i mean there was um there was a marvel movie out and other ones that we just did extremely well but yeah we were we were we were grateful no, that's yeah. fantastic it, the timing seems just incredible with christian movies that are coming out just killing it now and there's <laughs> they're so needed now these days um what can you tell us about like feedback that you're getting from your films and, you know, other films of directors that are, you know, doing Christian based movies? 
That's a good question, Greg. Uh, well, the, the biggest overall overarching comment we get, they cannot believe that this is a true story. We just hear that over repeatedly. We just had somebody just watching it up in Illinois that emailed and said, I kept watching this movie and I kept wishing, oh, I wish this was true. I wish this was true. <laughs> when he got to the end and found it was true, he was just blown away. Um, but, you know, that was one reason, Neil, I really felt we needed to do a motion picture because it's such a powerful story. The ABC affiliate in Orlando had been over here seven or eight times to do stories. And we said to really capture the the essence and the epicness of this true story, we felt like we needed a movie. And uh, so anyway, it's you know now we're on streaming platforms and we're I'm waiting to see numbers on that. I don't have numbers in yet from Amazon and Voodoo, but um, we just released, but we're hopeful. And that's 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 the exciting part is people want to do this. And then, then now when it's released, there'll be other parties, there'll be other communities. We're seeing this in the Christian realm that they're they're using this as a great way of ministry to put people together to watch these great films. And that's the amazing part of it. It's not just like one person streaming it. It's a bunch of people streaming this. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.